back, and so we're thankful for that. Uh, they have three children, and I'll say a little bit more about that in just a little while. Matt is a graduate of Yale Law School. He's worked with Faulkner University and currently works with Fried Hardeman University and does a, an outstanding job at whatever he does. And we're thankful that he is available and able to be with us here today. Uh, as we begin this morning, Brother Eddie Bull will lead us in a prayer. And following that prayer, we will turn the floor over to Matt so that he'll have all of his time. Brother Eddie. Pray with me, please. Father, we're so thankful that, again, we can gather together on this beautiful day to focus our minds on you and, and your word and your son. We're mindful this morning, Lord, of the church, and, and we know that, that it was bought by, with a great price, the blood of your son. And we know, Lord, that we live in a world that is constantly under attacking the church and we we know that that as we study this year the armor of God that that we know that we have the tools to deal with this and and we know Lord that uh, you're always there with us we're so thankful Lord for brother Matt and we've we've pray that you'll be with him this morning as he speaks. We, we're so thankful for his knowledge and, and his willingness to, to share his knowledge and, and, and the things that will help the churches. We pray, Lord, you'll be with us through our study and through our worship hour. And when we leave here, we pray, Lord, that we'll be a lot to you and your son. It's in his name we bring forth this prayer. Amen. Good morning. It's a real pleasure to be with you. It was uh, an honor to be asked to speak to elders from several congregations in Walker County. Uh, I think the uh, first church leadership workshop in Walker County yesterday was a great success and uh, and I know I uh, learned several things from some of the other speakers and, and I know the other elders were uh, edified by the fellowship with one another so I hope that uh, you as a congregation um, know what good work uh, that is. Now this morning I, I would like to spend just a few minutes talking to you as, uh, as Christians in a society that has become increasingly anti-Christian. And this is not intended to be a, uh, a negative discussion, but it's, it, is need, it is intended to be a wake-up call. It is intended to make sure that you're aware that you need to prepare yourself and your children in order to answer those that ask about the hope that lies within you because they are becoming increasingly uh, uh, polarized and, and indoctrinated by those that are opposed to your faith. And um, I, I think that this morning's conversation is going to center around uh, an old story from Acts chapter 19. He's going to be turning there because this is not something new. Uh, the persecution of the church is something that's been from the beginning. And Jesus prophesied that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And the uh, intent of that was not to scare us, but to prepare us. And that's the same intent that I have uh, this morning. So if you will, turn in your Bibles and we'll begin this study from Acts chapter 19. Starting in verse 23, it says, About that time there arose a little disturbance concerning the way. 
And now the reference to the way, of course, was one of the first uh, uh, ways that the work of the church, the church of Christ, was identified. Uh, they were described simply as the way because it is an exclusive way to salvation. It is an exclusive way to, become, to come to know God. And that's not a popular idea today, and it wasn't a popular idea then. But it doesn't change the fact that there's no other name under heaven other than Jesus Christ whereby we can be saved. Now, as they were trying to promote the way, it created a great commotion back then. And likewise, it does so today. About 65% of Christians worldwide are undergoing physical persecution. That's something that we have not yet experienced in this country. But that doesn't mean that we're not under attack. Let me uh, suggest to you that the story here, starting in verse 24, centers around the picture that you have to, the, to your left of Artemis or Diana. And the one to the right is another version of the same goddess. And this uh, goddess, Diana or Artemis, um, for most of the cities uh, uh, under, uh, in that day, uh, looked more like the one on the right. She was a, 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 for, a forest warrior, and she used a bow and arrows, and the animals were um, under her subjection, and, and, and she expressed a lot of independence and, and, and ability and stealth. But... In Ephesus, they had a slightly different version of Diana, one that be, be, had worldwide fame. And the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this, uh, this version of Diana that you see on the left had a, had a much more uh, majestic presence. And she has all these bulbous um, attachments adorning her, her chest. And she uh, was much more royal in nature and considered more majestic. And so, in, in looking at this goddess made with men's hands, let's continue to read the story in Acts 19, picking up at verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Your translation may, may say, no little profit. One of the number one reasons why people are not going to be friendly towards the faith or the way is because it may cost them something. And there's no more direct cost than financial cost, economic impact. And so here you have an a situation in which idolatry is profitable to the community and that results in them opposing Christianity. Not based on principle, not based on truth, not based on a long-term view of what really matters, especially eternally, but in the here and now, the immediate, right in front of them, what will it cost me? and whether I will gain more by compromising or less, whether I will save a little money now or make a little money now, and I really don't care about the long-term consequences. Isn't that the mindset of most people still today? Isn't that how they decide who to vote for the President of the United States? Isn't that how they decide whether to take a job? They don't care whether or not that will result in the, in the establishment of laws that will undermine Christianity. They don't care if that will result in them being unable to worship their God on the first day of the week, we take a very short-sighted view of our lives when we choose to follow mammon rather than God. Jesus made it very clear. You cannot serve two masters. You must choose one or the other. You will either be enslaved, according to Romans, to righteousness or to sin. And that you can either serve, according to Jesus, mammon or money or God. 
That kind of drastic, dramatic choice is something that our society wants to pretend is not something you have to do. They want to pretend that you can have your cake and eat it too. That you can have it all. That you can pursue every passion, every desire, every lust, every thought, every selfish intent. And there will be no consequences for that. The truth is, you have to make a hard choice. You have to be willing to submit your will to God's. You have to be willing to die to self and pick up your cross. That truth, that story hasn't changed for 2,000 years. And anyone who tells you something else is deceiving you with the philosophies of men. And for some reason, we've become desensitized to that philosophy. And we have bought into it more than we ought. Now, this verse goes on to say in verse 25 that they then gathered together. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. You see, it's not going to be you against one friend or one coworker or one teacher in the classroom. This is going to be an all-out war where you're going to be facing the majority wanting to go one way and you need to go the other. And the choice is, are you going to go along with the popular vote or whether you're going to stand your ground and be a minority? Sometimes a sole voice in the wilderness. Jesus himself said, wide is the gate that leads to destruction and narrow is the way to eternal life. And few there are that find it. Do you believe that? If we believe that, then we've got to be prepared to follow a different drummer. We've got to be prepared to take a stand even if it isn't what most of our friends and neighbors believe. But here he is facing a majority of the people in that town. And they said, as they gathered together, in verse 25, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods with hands are not gods. We don't have any record of what Paul's sermon was in Ephesus on this occasion. But we do have one of his opponent's summaries of one of the key points of that sermon. And one of the key points was that gods made with hands are not gods at all. You see, he didn't try to adopt a pluralistic or ecumenical approach to religion and say, you know, you know your religion has so much in common with ours that you just believe what you want to believe and we'll believe what you, we want to believe and we're all going to be pretty good people and we'll all be satisfactory and we're all going to go to heaven one day because God's a loving God. That's not what he preached. He was very clear about the fact that there is one way and that your gods made with hands are not gods at all. They get no credit. They are absolutely worthless to you. He did the same thing in a previous chapter in Acts 17 when he spoke on, uh, the, on Mars Hill, uh, to, on the Areopagus, to the Athenians. Great philosophers of Greece. And yet he was very unequivocal about the fact that I perceive that you are a superstitious people, he said. But there is one God, and you've been worshiping Him sort of accidentally as the unknown God, and I need to tell you more about Him because He's not happy with the fact that you're worshiping all these other gods. And they listened right up until the point you started talking about the resurrection from the dead, and most of them, not all, but most of them stopped listening and walked away, said He's crazy. 
The same point was made even earlier in chapter 16. Again and again and again, Paul was talking about an exclusive monotheistic faith that was the way to Christ, to God, to eternal life, and he did not equivocate in explaining to them that they were on the wrong path. They were worshiping the wrong God. They were not even worshiping a God at all. Today, we are being enticed by so-called Christians to buy into an ecumenical or pluralistic view of religion that suggests that the Muhammad of Islam is the same as the Jehovah of the Bible, that suggests that between various denominations, many of which, which whom hold contradictory views of the way of salvation, they are all Christians and therefore all loved by God and going to heaven. That is not at all what the Scriptures teach. I wish it wasn't so. But the truth is, few there are that will find eternal life. And we cannot be guilty of confusing them on which door to walk through. Keep reading with me, though, in verse 27. It picks up and says, And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, not just that we're going to be hurt financially, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. In other words, the prestige and, and, and the uh, fame that the city of Ephesus had acquired by building this temple to a God made without hands that wasn't a God at all is in jeopardy. Our reputation, our popularity, our fame. Isn't that a, a powerful motive for the world? To be famed, to be popular, to be liked, to be loved? You know, what? when you're striving for that, you're, you're often striving for something that's not really what you're focused on. I think of individuals like Robin Williams, who was worth millions of dollars and everyone thought was funny and was famously portrayed in many TV shows and in movies, and yet he hung himself. I, I, I could name several other actors and actresses who took their own lives when the world says they're famous and everybody loves them and, and, and people want their autographs. And yet, for some reason, they had this vacuous hole in their heart. They were unsatisfied and depressed and ended up taking their own lives. You ever wondered what it would be like to be famous? It's not all it's cracked up to be. What you're doing is you're trying to chase the love and the accolades of the world. And Jesus said... You know, when you do a good work, don't do it to be seen by man. Because you'll receive your praise from them, and that's all you're going to get out of it. But if you'll pray in secret, if you'll do so that your right hand doesn't know what your left is doing, you'll receive praise in heaven. Isn't that where we want to have fame and reputation, to be loved and, and glorified? If we'll glorify him, he will glorify us. If we try to glorify ourselves, it's sort of a, a weird thing. Those who seek to be first, Jesus said, shall be what? Last. 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 Ephesus, I've been there. It's nothing but ruins now. The temple, just a few rocks. Seven wonders of the ancient world. One of the seven. Now nothing. Dust. Dust. If they had only sought to be loved by God rather than by men, what a difference it might have made for the people in that day. Keep reading. He said that 
not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed from her magnificent, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed, rushed together into the theater, and they dragged with them Gaius and Articus and the Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. And you know the rest of the story. They persecuted Christians because of their worldly motives. The reason why I start with this ancient story is because I I want to parallel it to what's going on today. There is uh, perhaps no greater reason why we as Christians need to remain faithful than to provide a contrast between what we and the world have to offer people. Uh, Paul adopted a three-step strategy, though, when he was trying to help overcome this kind of superstition, this kind of anti-Christian mentality. And his three-step strategy followed here and elsewhere was always the same. In Acts 17 and Acts 16 and here in Acts 19, he would first identify their idols. Secondly, he would then go into the public space where back then there was no written communication. They didn't have a newspaper. They didn't have the ability to communicate except to go into the agora, to the marketplace, to the public space and actually talk face to face. And then he clearly would preach against their idols. That's a very simple approach to educate ourselves on what it is the world is caught up in and then go to the world and communicate directly to them the truth. Now, if we were to follow such a simple plan, how might it might, might be different? You know, in Ephesus, there's an inscription found there in the ancient ruins. And it suggests to me that Paul had an impact in Ephesus, that Christianity did take hold at least for a while. And here's what it says, quote, destroying the delusive image of the demon, Artemis. Demius, maybe a converted Christian, has erected this symbol of truth, the God that drives away idols and the cross of priests, deathless and victorious sign of Christ. Deathless, eternal life. Isn't that interesting? Now, Let me suggest to you that that same kind of idolatry occurs in our world. Where do I point this thing? Back towards him? It doesn't seem to catch. In your face, uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, So if you talk about idolatry in this country, what do you think of? We don't have polytheism, not to any large extent in this country where we worship little idols, although billions of people elsewhere in the world still do. If you go to the Asian countries, uh, and every taxi driver, every uh, business owner will put out their little god or goddess and they'll burn incense to it and the very first sale, the very first tip they receive will be offered up to their god or goddess that hopefully will bless them. If you go to Asia and you go into a Hindu temple they, or, or India, they will have a god for every day of the week. And depending on the day, that's the god that you would place money in the box in front of their little idol. So it's not that it has died down. There are more people that believe the way the, uh, the, uh, 
the, the folks in Ephesus did thousands of years ago still living today than there are that believe in the one true God. Interesting, isn't it? But in our country, that's a little foreign. So let's bring it home a little bit more. I want you to recognize that since 2007, since 2007, barely 15 years ago, or see, 8 years ago, the belief in God has gone down from 92% to 89%. The percentage that believe that God exists, and they're absolutely certain about that, has gone from 71% to 63%. And most interestingly, the number of folks that no longer identify as any kind of religion, Christian, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, anything, has gone from 16% in 2007 to 23%. That now will check the box, none. And so the statisticians today call them the nuns. N-O-N-E-S. The percentage of folks in America that have no religious affiliation whatsoever is now almost a quarter, one in four, of Americans. That will impact the culture. One of the reasons why I believe in Christian education and I left FedEx as a corporate attorney to uh, join Faulkner and now I'm at Fried Hardeman as a vice president is because I believe in the fact that it's important during those formative years when a child is 17 or 18 years old and leaving the shelter and the protection and the leadership of their home and going out on their own, those first few formative years when they are choosing what vocation they're going to enter into, that will impact their faith, either for good or for bad. When they're choosing their mate for life, that will impact their faith for good or for bad. When they're still trying to formulate their view of the world, which will impact their faith, for good or for bad, we need to be doing all we can to prepare them. And one of the most important ways is to put them in a community of peers who are of the same age and of the same mindset. Do you realize that of the 10 or 11 higher schools of education, colleges and universities in this country that are historically affiliated with the Church of Christ, only two only two still have a majority of the students in the undergraduate body members of the Church of Christ. Free Hardeman, thankfully, is one of them, and it has the highest percentage. We still have over 80, 82% of our student body is members of the church. 100% of our faculty, members of the church, and held to uh, not just being a, a nominal member of the church, but being a member of a congregation that is faithful in all the, some of the basic things that are, that are being attacked in our society today. That's unheard of anywhere else in the world. I'm proud of that. That's the reason why I'm there. But the reason why I believe it makes a difference is because it impacts the people that are who you spend time with and who you hang out with and the kind of parties you go to and the kind of dorm life you're going to have for three or four years, it makes a difference. If the conversations you're having with people, and they all ask all the hard questions and they're all growing spiritually and at different points in their lives spiritually, but they all have the same basic objective. And that is an amazing opportunity to ground ourselves, especially when we realize that science says, no offense guys, that your brain isn't fully formed till you're 25. You've still got a lot to learn. You've got a lot of habits to develop. You've got a lot of, of, of 
pathways in your brain to really grind down and really get it to define what it is you want to do and how you want to do things. Now, let me go beyond, though, religion as an idolatrous option and realize that there's a lot of other pressures going on in our society. Um, This is just one example. This school in Florida had the professor that's being displayed here um, have all the students stand up, write on a piece of paper the word Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, and then he instructed them to all step on it. You know, it's one thing to pick a school where your peers are not going to be pressuring you to do wrong. It's another thing to pick a school intentionally where the professor is going to be encouraging you to spit on Jesus, to stomp on Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? You know, the school didn't discipline him for that. They later apologized once they were sued, but very little else. How about this one? Sonoma State University. This young girl started as a freshman. She showed up to orientation dressed very similar to what she's wearing around her neck right now. Small cross. Do you see that? She was told to remove that cross. And she asked why? Because it might offend someone. You know the, the inscription we read in Ephesus? What was it that he had put up? A cross. Now, I don't believe in religious symbols, but I do believe we're going in the wrong direction when we are afraid of a religious symbol because it might offend someone, because it represents the cross, representing Christ, and for what it represents. She sued and also vindicated, but there was no apology. See if I can... I still haven't quite figured out which way to point. Um, This is Baltimore Community College. And they had a radiation therapy program that two young men wanted to get into. And they were both interviewed. And during the interview, they were both asked a simple question. What was the most important thing in their life? One of them responded, honestly, my God. And the other responded, my faith. And they not only weren't admitted, but they were told by the director of the program the reason why they weren't admitted. And it's because they brought their faith into the interview that they would dare to suggest that their faith was that important. She said, quote, this is not the place for religion. If you interview in the future, you may want to leave your thoughts and beliefs out of the interview. Ask you. If they were to ask you that kind of open-ended philosophical question, what's the most important thing in your life? What were you supposed to say? Money? Prestige? Fame? What would you say as a Christian, honestly? And yet, for some reason, time and time again, the folks that are teaching our young people and shaping their minds in those critical years are trying to undermine their faith at every opportunity. It's not just something that happens on the West Coast or the East Coast. It's happening just in our neighborhood as well. Savannah State University over in Georgia uh, tried to abolish or did abolish and then later had to let them back in on campus a Christian club. Why? Because they received a complaint from one of the uh, thousands of students on that campus that they were engaging in cult-like practices. 
So they did a very cursory investigation. They shut them down because they found they were doing things like baptizing and feet washing. And they found that to be unacceptable on a college campus. Or this one. This is a website you can go to called Campus Pride, which will rank every major college and university on a scale and will basically penalize them if they do not promote the hiring and tenuring of LGBT faculty, if they do not allow uh, for LGBT clubs on their campus to bring speakers, uh, provide scholarships, I think I just went past it all. Um, can you help me out back there? Go back. All right, let's try it again. This thing's just not cooperating with me today. Sorry, guys. Um, so there's a website that will judge them. If they don't provide scholarships, if they don't provide weekly speakers bureaus, if they do not, or if they aren't fully committed to transforming their campus, and by transforming, that means accommodating the transgendered and allowing uh, a boy who thinks he's a girl, whether he's had the sex operation or not, to go to the girls' restrooms, for example. Here's the University of Tennessee, what they have posted on their website for the Office of Diversity, and they are training their faculty to not assume that a young man is a young man and not to call him a he until he tells them that he wants to be called a he because he may be preferred to call, call himself a she. In which case, you are to refer to him as a Z until he makes that declaration to you. Or a Zai if you prefer. But not he or she. Because we want to not uh, assume biological sex, the way God created them, means anything. Now, that's just a flavor of the kind of cultural uh, war that's going on. Go to the next slide. I, I've lost control of this thing. Uh, Hastings is a school of law um, at the University of California, uh, in the University of California school system, who took a position that was very radical at the time and is now commonplace in most colleges and universities. And the, the, the basic rule was this, that you cannot discriminate on the basis of religion in deter, or, or religious practice or in, or in moral conduct uh, for the membership of any school, student organization on campus or for the leadership, the officers' positions of any student organization on campus. Well, that kind of commitment to non-discrimination across the board is, uh, is very in keeping with uh, the philosophy of the day of, of absolute equality. It's the way we ended up with same-sex marriage being considered the, uh, on the equal level playing field as, as opposite-sex marriage. This absolute equality is the rule of the day. The problem with that is that there was a student organization at this law school that was at most law schools called Christian Legal Society. And as one of the conditions of being a member of the Christian Legal Society is that you profess to be a Christian in the most general sense of the term. 
And therefore, if you wanted to run as an officer, say the president of that organization, you could not claim to be an atheist. Is there anything radical about that idea? And yet this case went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ordered, ordered that student organization to submit to the Hastings rule or get off campus. To allow an atheist to run their club or get off campus. That's a public school. And that's the default rule at all public schools now because of that Supreme Court decision. Well, at private schools, they could at least not buy into such craziness. Oh, no. It's become politically correct now. So if you go to Vanderbilt, go to the next slide, please. Here's the response of the Vice Chancellor McCarty to the Christian Legal Society at their law school. It would still be consistent with your goals of serving the underserved with legal advice and legal services if you were to allow an atheist to run for president of your club, is what he's talking about. But maybe it isn't that Christianly. Maybe it isn't Christian, he says, he admits. But they endorse what you're trying to do. Who is he to, to, to define what they are trying to do? Perhaps they're trying to glorify God. Perhaps they're trying to be consistent with their faith and not live contradictory lives and allow people that are, are spitting on God, Jesus and stomping on his name to run their organization. Maybe that's part of what they're trying to do other than just do completely secular benevolence work that any organization, religious or unreligious, would be doing. But keep reading to understand his mindset. But they endorse what you're trying to do. Give that person a chance. Give that atheist a chance to run to be the president of your organization. Or you've got to let him be a member. Now, let me give you another example, and this would affect all of you. I'm Catholic, he says. What if my faith beliefs guided all the decisions that I make from day to day? Can you imagine me saying that as a school administrator at Fried Hardeman? I'm a Christian, but you don't really want me to make decisions here based on my Christian faith, do you? Don't you, want, don't you prefer that I compartmentalize my faith and I'm a Christian on Sundays and maybe Wednesdays, but the rest of the day when I have to make decisions for this university, when I have to decide how we're going to make a profit, I don't want my Christian faith, in, you don't want my Christian faith influencing that decision process, do you? When I establish the moral conduct and the rules for this campus, you don't want Christianity to have to influence that, do you? I mean, he is so far out that he doesn't even understand the fact that that kind of inconsistency, that kind of compartmentalizing, lacks any integrity whatsoever. And that there is no way he can guide the moral conduct of that campus unless he apply universal, absolute principles that are Christian. And yet... Here he is asking young people to compromise because he has already compromised in his life. And that's the philosophy, that's the ruling rule of the day on all secular campuses and all public universities and most private. Even those that had historical roots in faith-based religion. Now, San Diego follows the same rule, but they have a little double standard. The vegan club... They can uh, discriminate against deer hunters and not let them in. But the Christian club can't discriminate against atheists and refuse to let them in. Interesting, isn't it, how it gets played out. I could go on and on, but you get the idea. Um, all of these universities have stories that we can tell. 
Tufts have basically said that they can't uh, make exceptions for the Christian organizations because that would make the kids feel so depressed that they can't, if they're an atheist, be allowed into uh, run for president of the Christian club, they might kill themselves. So they're using suicide as the excuse for imposing the rule there. So you get the idea. Please go to the next slide if you can help me. Thank you. Go on, click through that. Law shapes culture. Let me close out with uh, this story. If you understand how slowly culture permeates our lives, and the church even, then I think if you step back and see what's happened in society, you can see that it was actually predicted by Alexis de de Tocqueville. And de Tocqueville was a a Frenchman, a a foreigner from, from Europe, who came over in the earliest days of the Republic to see the American experiment for himself. And he wrote a book, maybe perhaps you read it in, in high school, called Democracy in America. And what I found interesting about the book was not the fact that he predicted that America and Russia would be the two superpowers of the world in the future, or the fact that he predicted that uh, while America would grow in greatness, Europe would decline and become nothing more than museums, which I believe has pretty much happened. But I found this quote the most interesting. He said, for all of its good, there's one danger about democracy, where we decide what's right and wrong, what the rules are going to be based on a show of hands. He said this, the majority's moral power makes individuals internally ashamed to contradict it, which in effect silences them, and this silencing culminates in the cessation of thinking. Break it down. What he's saying is that if a tyrant, if a despot, if a king tells you what the rules are, you'll submit to it maybe until you can revolt. But it doesn't internalize the same way if all of your friends and all of your neighbors say, you know what, same-sex marriage is okay. And that's what 63% of Americans believe now. There's nothing wrong with that. And what happens is not only do you tend to internalize it more because it's coming from your friends and your neighbors, but you become ashamed to contradict that and challenge it. And then eventually you'll just be silent and not talk about it. And that this silence will actually result in you stop thinking about it. I challenge you. In the 70s, when divorce from marriage became rampant because you no longer had to give a reason, no-fault divorce, hasn't that slowly eroded our desire to even talk about the plague of divorce in this country. We don't even think about the fact that 50% of our marriages result in the breakdown of the family home, which results in most of the poverty, most of the crime, and most of the problems of our society. But it was diverting from God's plan. And here we are last June being told that same-sex marriage is a constitutional right. Are we going to stop? Are we going to be too ashamed to contradict that and become silent about it and eventually just stop thinking about that too? so that it can take over our society the same way that divorce has? I challenge you, I challenge you not to give up the fight, but to be like Paul, be willing to go into the public spaces and call, it, call, sin, what's, call sin, sin, and help people understand the way, the hope that lies within you. Go with me, if you don't mind, in a prayer to our Heavenly Father. Dear God, we're mindful of you, we're mindful of the many blessings that you give us, but we're also mindful of the freedom and the responsibility that comes with it that we have in Christ. We're thankful that you've washed away all of our sins. We're thankful that you've made us your children and adopted us so that we might have a hope of eternal life with you in heaven one day. But we also know that with that 
freedom, with that blessing comes great responsibility. We pray that we will not give up the Great Commission, that we will take it to heart and live it out to the best of our ability. We pray that we'll not be ashamed to proclaim your name and your teachings and your way. And also we ask your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yesterday this is working good. Do you think the battery's dying on it? Okay. Real hard? Okay. And then point it directly towards this? Okay. Okay. Okay, that'll work. Thank you. No, that's all right.